Amen. Thank you, Keith. Thanks, Nate. Richard and choir, wonderful worship so far. What a great way to begin this sacred season of Advent. We've got to celebrate baptism. That was the most special part of the day. Uh, Sophie Daniels, thank you for your testimony to all of us here today. And then the the readings from the Carpenos family of uh, the great hope of the world from the prophet Isaiah. And did you catch the organ prelude? You, you wouldn't know this, I wouldn't know this, unless you were like a Bach expert or had happened to see the order of service that Richard had printed out for the musicians, but Nate selected a uh, piece by Bach for the prelude called Sleeper's Wake, and then the postlude, I encourage you to stick around and listen for the postlude. It's called Savior of the Nations Come, very appropriate Advent songs from Bach, and nobody plays Bach like this guy over here. And I caught your pun, Trey, but you worked on that all morning. That was great. Thank you. Oh, no, it just came to you? That's, you have a gift, my friend. Uh, we do encourage you all month long, 100% of the Christmas missions offerings will go to support the work of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, or you can designate to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship as well. But all of those monies will go towards missions 100% uh, to further the kingdom of God around the world. And there's some incredible uh, work that's being done by our missions organizations, and I encourage you to check it out uh, online at IMB. Org. You can see what the, the International Mission Board's doing. Um, it's just amazing how God's using that. And that, those monies have supported people in our own church here, like Rachel Gregory, who uh, didn't have to pay for her apartment uh, in Madagascar because of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Jan Bennett in Venezuela, uh, Bert Dyson in Africa, uh, Carlos and Murtis Owens in Africa, all those IMB missionaries who've been supported by your tithes and offerings. So please give generously to the Christmas missions offerings. Today is Advent. It doesn't feel like it outside. I know it's like 70 degrees and sunny, but uh, it is Advent. And Advent is a season not of celebrating the birth of Christ. It's a season of anticipating the birth of Christ. It's about awaiting. And two of my favorite songs of all time, of all time, any kind of music at all, are Come Thou Long Expected Jesus and O Come, O Come Emmanuel. That arrangement was amazing. Eight minutes, but I loved it. That's amazing. Uh, y'all going to do that next week too? I guess, no. Okay, man. That's back to back. We're going to have a cellist three weeks in a row, I think. Is that right? Three weeks in a row, we're going to have cello here. So if you like the cello, you're at the right place. I love Christmas. It's the best time of year. It is. And Advent is a time that is anticipating the joy that comes at the birth of Christ in the Christmas season. And today we're going to begin a new series, The Light and the Life of Christ. And it's going to be for the month of December. We've finished walking through the Apostles' Creed line by line, looking at the core doctrines of the Christian faith and what it means to really be a Christian, including some of those doctrines we don't really talk about a lot. And, and then last week we talked about giving thanks even when times are tough. And I told uh, Don Dowdy's here uh, today, and I told him I'd use his dad as an example last week of how Al is someone who, whenever you ask him how he's doing, he says, I'm just grateful. And even when times are, are, are not so easy for him, he's always so gr grateful. And that, what a great example for us to follow. And now we're going to begin this series. On your weekly, it says it's a, a December series in John. And that's true, but this is going to be a series that's unlike any other that I've ever attempted. I'm not sure it's ever been tried in this church even, but the plan is to spend a whole year 
in John, walking through the gospel. That's right, 52 sermons that cover every verse of the amazing book of John. And some of the most formative sermons that I've ever heard in my life come from these long series that have been walking through a book of the Bible. When I was in college, we had a service called Refuge for college students at First Baptist Nashville, and we had 800 college kids come in, and, and the, the, the pastor who preached it at Refuge every week took two years to get through the Gospel of John, and we're going to do it in one, so that's half the time, incredible. I'm not going to do what some other preachers have done. You know, this, there's a rich tradition of legendary preachers who've spent years in one book of the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones in London at Westminster Chapel spent 13 years going through Romans, and then he quit at chapter 14 because he said he wasn't worthy to finish it. That's amazing. Uh, there's a Puritan preacher named Joseph Carroll who spent 40 years, more than 40 years, preaching through Job. Yikes, okay. Let's be honest, some of you are, are like, a year in John, let's go, that's going to be great, I can't wait to hear that. I also know that some of you are like, really? <laughs> a year in John? That sounds kind of boring. It is going to be difficult to avoid, you know, kind of repetition and, and, and having a class on John. I don't want this to be like John 101 or anything like that, but my hope is that we'll see the richness of each and every text, each and every week as we walk through God's word together. There's an unbelievable wealth of knowledge of Jesus in this book that we're going to encounter week in and week out. And if talking about Jesus has become stale or boring to you at some level, and that just may be simply where some of you are at today, and, and that's okay, but my prayer is that as we walk through this gospel over the next year, that we would all be uh, just awake to the love of Christ more and more, that we would wake up that passion for Jesus in our souls. In fact, I pray that in 2020, in, in one year from now, because we will have then spent a year dwelling in John, my prayer is that we would all treasure Christ all the more. I pray that we can be like Lucy in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I remember Lucy Pevensey, the youngest of the four kids, you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the second book that he wrote, Prince Caspian, he talks about them returning, the Pevensey kids return to Narnia. And when they show up in Narnia, it's been several years since they had been back in Narnia with Aslan. Aslan's the great king of Narnia, right? He's the, the massive lion who has the sharp teeth and the big claws, and he is not safe by any means, as Miss Beaver says, but he is good. He's the good ruler of Narnia. And when Lucy sees him for the first time, she looks into his massive face and says, Aslan, and he says, welcome, child. And she says, you've gotten bigger. And he says, no, I, I haven't, but, but you've grown older. And she says, it's, it's not because you've grown older? And he says, no, I haven't grown older. He says, every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. 
And my prayer is that as we grow in Christ, as we mature into the believers that he has called us to be, that we would find Christ to be greater and greater in our lives, that we would treasure him all the more dearly and cherish him all the more closely as our Lord and Savior over the next year. It's the perfect time to begin this series because John chapter 1 is one of the greatest Advent texts of all time in the Bible. And I've divided all the texts for each month into a theme. So if you're worried about it getting boring, at least there's a little sub-theme each month, okay? There'll be a, a different graphic that Andy will make that'll be beautiful each month to go with the theme that fits those texts for that month. And so for December, we're going to focus on the life and the light that Christ Jesus embodied and came to bring us. And honestly, the rest of the book of John is, is really just an expansion of this theme that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, full of light and full of life that he came to give to us who didn't deserve it, as Ron prayed earlier. And again, for the next 11 months, we're going to really be unpacking what that means and what that looks like. And if that sounds boring to you, I, I promise it's, it's going to be cool, okay? Just trust me. Go with us. I hope that you will find it just more and more amazing as we walk through this amazing book of the Bible. So before we dive into our text for today, let me just give us a little background on John. Again, this is not John 101, but I think it's important to know uh, a little bit about the, this book. And I won't do this every week for a year, I promise. But let's talk about John. Who wrote John? Trick question. God did. Gotcha. God wrote the whole Bible. The Bible has God for its author from beginning to end, but he used a guy named John to write this particular gospel narrative. Who was John? He was a fisherman by trade, along with his brother James, when one day Jesus of Nazareth came walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and changed their lives forever. They left everything behind in order to live into this new vocation that Jesus had called them to as his disciples. And Jesus is great with nicknames. Did you know that? I love people who give people nicknames. I think it's hilarious and witty and, and wonderful. John Tarpley's the best. Is he here today? He gives everybody uh, a nickname, Pam, the Wyatola, right? The Wyatt, you know, I, he hasn't given me one yet. I keep waiting for, for my nickname, but I love to watch SportsCenter and Chris Berman, you know, Boomer on the SportsCenter. He's great with nicknames. Uh, he says uh, Greg Maddox. Remember Greg Maddox, the pitcher for the Braves? He called him Greg Mathematics. Uh, Albert Pujols, he called Albert Winnie the Pujols. Uh, Chuck Knobloch became Chuck New Kids On Knobloch. Jesus gives James and John a nickname. He calls them the Sons of Thunder. Isn't that awesome? They must have had such a power and such a spirit of fiery passion about them that Jesus loved. He said, you guys, Sons of Thunder. And they were probably like, yeah, that's cool. That's a great name. They became part of his inner circle along with Peter. The, the three men, James, Peter, and John, got to experience things that the other disciples didn't get to experience as part of Jesus' closest and most trusted circle of disciples. But John was even more close to Jesus in a way that Peter and James were not. When Jesus hung on the cross at the end of his ministry, when, when he was giving up his spirit into the hands of, the, of Lord God the Father, 
what did he say to, to Mary? He said, Mary, behold your son. He entrusted the care of his own mother to his best friend, John. They had that kind of relationship that was so special. At the Last Supper, we see John sitting right next to Jesus Christ and even leaning against him, it says. It says in the text of John, that in John 13, that, that John the Apostle leaned back onto the chest of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. Have you ever been to a, a wedding, like a rehearsal dinner maybe, and, and heard a, a toast that the best friend of the groom or the best friend of the bride gives at those dinners? It's, it's an amazing emotional and, and special occasion to witness these, these toasts because the best friend of the bride or the best friend of the groom knows them in a way that the rest of us don't. They speak with an authority of years of past experiences. They've been through a lot with that person. And when they stand up to give a toast, they do so from a perspective of, of knowing this person intimately. And that's what we get in the Gospel of John. We get this account, this narrative, this story from Jesus' own best friend who knew him in a way that few other people on earth ever had the opportunity to know him. I love how Origen, one of the early church fathers who was a bishop in Egypt in the early 200s, he said that the gospels are the first fruits of all writings, and John is the first fruits of the gospels. And no one can receive its meaning who has not himself laid back on Jesus's chest. Isn't that great? If we're going to understand John, we have to long for that kind of intimacy, to know Christ in that kind of way. So when did John write this gospel account? Well, God, the scholars tell us that John wrote this later in his life. It was after 70 AD, most scholars think, and John was an old man at this point. All the other apostles had been martyred by this point. And he was probably pastoring at the time somewhere in Asia Minor, which is, you know, modern-day Turkey. Why did he write it? Well, John was a pastor. He wanted to guide his flock into a greater knowledge and understanding of who Jesus Christ is and was. And Clement, another early church father like Origen, he was Origen's predecessor in Alexandria, late 100s, he, he said, last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain, meaning in the other gospel accounts, he composed a spiritual gospel. It's different from all the other gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They even use the, the same source material we know, and they have a lot of the same stories. But John is totally different. John is a spiritual gospel, as Clement said. It's full of doctrine about who Jesus is, not just what he said or, or what he did. And John writes with uh, evangelistic intent. He has a purpose to share the good news. His purpose in writing is revealed in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. You can read it here. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe in that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
that you would believe in him and that in believing you would have life. That's why he writes this. This is what Christmas is all about. If you think we've lost touch with Advent, I'm telling you, this is what Christmas is all about. And it's what the next year is going to be about too. That I hope you're, you're ready and excited that we're going to be talking about the life that is in Christ that has come to bring us abundant life. Okay, with all of that in mind, let's stand if you're able to this morning in honor of God's word. As I read these first five verses, this is exciting. The first part of John we're diving into, the first five verses. Here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, biblical scholars often say that each of the four Gospels has a different emphasis, a different point of, of that the, the Gospel authors are trying to make. And Matthew, we know, emphasizes Jesus' kingship, that he's the, the promised king, like David on his throne with the scepter ruling over God's kingdom. But Luke really emphasizes, uh, I mean, Mark emphasizes Jesus' servanthood, that he was a servant of, he was lowly and among all the people. And then Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity, that he was fully human, that he was 100% human being. But then in John, we see that the emphasis is on Jesus' divinity, that he was 100% God. You say, wait a minute, how could he be 100% God and 100% human? It's the miracle of the incarnation. That when Jesus came, he was fully God and yet fully human. Only a Messiah could be both. So we see here in these first few verses in John that Jesus is this great creator God of the universe. We're immediately confronted with the greatness of who Jesus Christ is from the very beginning of this book. In just the first three verses, we see that Jesus is the eternal one, without beginning or end. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus is eternally pre-existent. I love that word, pre-existent. It says, in the beginning was the word. You know what that sounds like, right? In the beginning, it would have been obvious to the Jewish readers who first read this that John was playing on Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does in the beginning mean? When, when the Bible says in the beginning, they don't just mean at the beginning of this story. They mean before all time, before creation was even a thought, before there was anything else, God was and in case you didn't know already, we find out later in verse 14 that when John says the word, we know he's referring to none other than Jesus Christ. Why does John call him the word? Well, in Greek, it, the, the word is logos, right? And logos had the connotation not of a word like 
hello. It, it didn't mean like that kind of word. It, when it, it says word, it, it has the implication of divine speech. A logos word was a word that was from God, that revealed truth about reality. It was an illumination. It was a revelation from God about what reality really was. And the verb here, when it says, in the beginning, the word was with God, the word was God, the, the verb for was in the imperfect tense in the original Greek means that it's not complete. It means that it's ongoing, that it's continual. So to get a real sense of what this verse is saying, it really says, in the beginning was continuing the word, and the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually God. This means that Jesus was not born from God. There are several sects and other you know, groups that claim to be Christians that claim that Jesus was begotten of the Father, meaning that he actually was born somehow from God. But this verse cannot be interpreted any other way than the fact that Jesus was continually God from the beginning. He always existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from before there was time. The Trinity was pre-existent. The Holy Trinity we just spent 12 weeks focusing on in the Apostles' Creed is uncreated. The Godhead of three in one is the source of all creation, of all life, of all other creative activity throughout the cosmos. And then John tells us that the, that the Logos, the Word, is not only eternally preexistent, but the, the Logos is continually with God. That means that the Logos is eternally in relationship. The Word was with God. The idea here is that the Father and Son have been eternally connected in this perfect, harmonic relationship of the Trinity, constantly relating to each other as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally in relationship. There's a lot of, again, false religions and groups that deny that Jesus has always been part of the Trinity, but this verse, again, has to be interpreted this way. To be a Christian is to affirm this core doctrine of the Trinity from the beginning of time. And the final phrase of verse 1 adds, and the word was continually God. Christ is eternally God. He is God, he always has been God, and he always will be 100% divine, even though he's a separate person from God the Father. And then in verse 3, we, we see that this Christ, this word, this logos, is also eternally the creator. He's eternally the creator. Wait a minute, I thought God the Father was creator. Didn't we just spend like 12 weeks reading the creed that said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Yes, God the Father is creator. But how did he create? Do you remember? Did he like take some stuff with his hands and like build the world? No, how did God create everything? By his word, right? And that word is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the means by which God spoke everything into existence. 
The word of creation is Jesus Christ. He's both the agent by which God created the world, and he's also the goal that creation is heading towards. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, two of my favorite verses. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. I love the the, the macro aspects of these verses and the micro aspects of these verses. It says that, that Christ is the agent of the, the massive expanse of creation, when you start like Googling stars and stuff and galaxies and even multiverse, have you heard that before? It's just like mind-blowing how big, I mean, our galaxy, Einstein estimated that our best, biggest telescopes have only scanned about one billionth of the galaxy. We're just scratching the surface of what's out there. There are over a billion galaxies that we know of, and each galaxy has a hundred billion stars in it. There's like 10 octillion stars that we haven't even begun to look at. And Christ is the one who spoke all of those into existence. It's mind-blowing how powerful and how amazing his creative faculties are. But Christ is also the glue that holds it all together, even down to the subatomic level. We have lots of scientists in our church who, you know, have these amazing microscopes that look at atoms and do all kinds of amazing things that I don't understand. But what this verse is saying is that Christ is is what holds the, the neutrons and the protons and the electrons all together in, in his sovereign will. All the atoms of the universe are marching to the beat of Christ's rhythm. And then verse 4 says that in Christ was life, real life. John says later in, in chapter 10, he quotes Jesus as saying, I've come that they may have life and have it to the fullest, to have abundant life. Jesus came to wake up dead people to call them out of the grave, just like Sophie showed us, to die to their old sinful, fallen, fleshly self and to be raised into a glorious new existence, a whole new way to be human. The abundant life that Christ brings is this light that reveals what is good, what is true, what is real, what is lasting, what is significant in our world. The abundant life of Christ pulls back the curtain on the lies that this world tries to sell us on about what life is really all about, what the meaning of life is, what the purpose of life, what the good life is. You know, each person has their own concept of what the good life is, what it looks like. Some people think it's about being powerful, having influence, Some people think it's about wealth and accumulating stuff. Some people think it's about being important and being remembered and having a legacy. You know, advertising is this multi-billion dollar industry that's bent on convincing us to part with our money in order to 
have the good life. That if we will obtain something, then we can have the good life. But Jesus shows us what life really could be and what it should be. A full and abundantly joyful life both on earth now and forever in eternity. And the light of the good life in Christ cannot be snuffed out by anything in this world. It's not overshadowed by darkness. Christ's light wins every time. It's easy to look at this world and get discouraged. I think that's why I like those songs, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Come That Long Expected Jesus, because you know, we sing that, that phrase about bid our divisions cease and come and be our king of peace. I say, yes, Jesus, please come. It's easy to get discouraged in this world, but we need to remember that Jesus Christ's light will not be overshadowed by anything. We're told here that nothing can take, overtake the light of Christ, no matter how bad it may be. So what does this all mean for us today? Well, because Jesus is eternally pre-existent, because he is eternally in relationship with God, because he is eternally God, and because he's eternally the macro and micro creator of the universe, we can trust that his life that he brings us is indeed the best hope for the good life. This is why Jesus came to earth. This is what Advent is all about. When Rachel and I were talking with Sophie this morning about her confession of faith, Jesus Christ is Lord, we said that means he's the boss, that he's in charge of your life now. And she said, absolutely. She understood. You know, I read a story about Charles Steinmetz. You ever heard of Charles Steinmetz? I hadn't heard of this guy before, but I read a story recently. He was the mechanical genius behind the first Ford Motor Company products, the, the engines and the cars, and it was said that Steinmetz could build an entire engine in his mind, and then when something broke in the engine in his mind, he could go in and fix it all in his head before it was even a reality. An amazing genius. One day, the assembly line at the Ford plant broke down, and nobody could fix it, so what do they do? Get Steinmetz down here. Steinmetz comes and spends a few minutes tinkering around, and he flips the switch, and everything's humming along great again. He fixed it. And a few days later, uh, Henry Ford got a bill on his desk for $10,000 from Charlie Steinmetz. And it was a lot of money back then, so Ford wrote him a letter and said, Charlie, that seems a little high, buddy. You were in there for a few minutes tinkering around. And so Charlie sent him a revised bill, and the bill said, tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker? $9,990. Jesus is the master tinkerer. He sees through the lies and the confusion and the sin of this world. Jesus sees us as we truly are from the inside out, from the minute details of each proton and neutron that make up our bodies to the big picture of our future and how we fit into God's plans for eternity. He sees it all. He therefore knows exactly where to tinker with us. He knows exactly where to move in our lives in order to help us flourish 
and thrive and be the man or woman that he created us to be. We can therefore trust him with everything. What are you holding back from him today? Where are you resistant to the lordship of Christ in your own life today? What is it that you need to surrender to Christ today in order to follow him as Lord and Master? Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have given us this amazing testimony to who you are. We thank you for your servant, John, who preserved these words that you gave to him in writing, that we may be able to know Jesus Christ more fully and follow him more closely. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts, awaken them to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Help us to treasure him as supreme over all. Help us to understand that the good life is found in Jesus only, that every other attempt we make to attain the good life will ultimately fail because there is no life outside of Christ. In him was life, and that life is the light of all mankind. We thank you, God, for sending him to a manger in Bethlehem, the miracle of the incarnation that we celebrated this time of year is all about the fact that you sent life and light to us. I pray that we would grasp that during this Advent season in a way that stirs our hearts to follow you more closely. I pray that you would use this church, God, over the next year to just become passionate about Jesus Christ in everything that we do, that he would reign supreme as Lord of our hearts and our lives as we seek to become the people that you made us to be. I thank you for the testimony of Sophie Daniels today, that she has died to her old self and been raised into a whole new kind of existence. I pray that you would remind those of us who have been baptized of our own baptism, that we are called to walk not as our former selves did, but we are called to walk in newness of life. Lord God, we love you. We pray all these things in the high and the holy name of the God who came to dwell with us, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Amen. We're going to have time of invitation now. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and you want to come forward now and talk to me about that, I'd love to talk with you about that. If you just want to pray with somebody, I'm going to ask Trey and and Brad and Jan, if you'll come up here. If you just need prayer right now, the holidays are tough, like Ron said. I would encourage you, CR is an incredible ministry. Ron and Eddie and so many others, uh, you know, Dewey and and those who've been so faithful over the years. If, If you just want to to, to talk about your hurts, habits, and hang-ups with some people. He said they're just as welcoming as we are on Sunday mornings, but I think they're even more so. It's a, a wonderful blessing. They, they start with a meal at 6 on Monday nights. The program's at 7. If you want to come and be a part of that. If you just want to pray with one of these people here today about a hurt, habit, or hang-up in your life, or just for someone else that you're burdened for, I encourage you to come forward. The altar will be open as well if you just want to come pray. If you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church as a member and talk about uh, becoming a part of our church as an official member and you're ready to do life with us, I'd love to talk with you about that as well. Whatever it is that you need to do in this time, let's sing. His name is called Emmanuel, God with us. Let's stand.